Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. What are the barriers to children as they learn and have systems in place to really identify those barriers? So as children are learning across the grades, we should have some systems in place that if they're starting to struggle, that we should have a better sense of why and have some ready systems in place to determine why. You just heard Dr. Tiffany Hogan, director of the Speech and Language SAIL Literacy Lab and professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Massachusetts General Hospital Institute. Today, Dr. Hogan joins Dr. Liz Brooke to discuss the role of research and education and what we now know about language disorders on All for Literacy. Here's your host, Liz Brooke. Thank you for joining us today as we speak with Dr. Tiffany Hogan, who is the director of the SAIL Literacy Lab and professor at Mass General Hospital Institute of Health Professions and host of the See, Hear, Speak podcast. Listeners, you might recall that Tiffany was a co-host and guest on my inaugural episode with Emily Hanford. So welcome back, Tiffany, and thanks for spending some time with us today. So happy to be here. For our listeners, whether your interest in literacy education stems from standing in front of a classroom of future readers or leading a school through post-pandemic education or wanting to better understand your child's educational journey or just simple curiosity about the science of reading, Dr. Tiffany Hogan is someone worth listening to. She is immersed in the needs of readers with speech and language and literacy disorders, And Tiffany is committed to not just doing the research, but implementing the knowledge we gain from it in a way that supports teachers and learners. So I'm so excited to talk to you today. And I always like to start, Tiffany, with how did you get started in education? What was your inspiration for getting into this field? Well, that's a great question and fun to think about. I first started out in psychology. I was just interested in human behavior in general. And then I became very interested in more language development. So how children go from kind of the blobology of babies where they're just kind of sitting there. And then like all of a sudden, one year later, they're speaking. And what goes on between that period of birth to first words? And then as they continue to grow in their language development, I find it to be completely fascinating the way that children can start to generate their own thoughts and really represent those thoughts and their intentions and their wants and needs and their desires through language. So that was really my into the field of speech language pathology was my interest in language development. And then I also had the dual interest of helping people in some way. So some type of profession that would support people. So speech language pathology focuses on communication as a human right and has a broad scope of practice from swallowing disorders all the way to written language disorders, really focusing on not only typical development, but what can go wrong in typical development and what are the different neurodiversities around language development and speech development. It also involves working with people from birth all the way through the end of life 
and supporting their communication along the way. They're in multiple settings, including hospital settings and early intervention and in school settings. Yeah, it's really fun to hear your description of that because, as you know, I'm a fellow SLP and actually got my master's at the MGHIHP. So that was one of the things that drew me to speech pathology as well, that idea that it can be anywhere from swallowing to working with stroke patients to being in a school or nursing home. And as you said, from birth all the way through the end of someone's life. So I love that idea about communication as a human right, too. That's a wonderful connection. And you mentioned language, and I know so much of your work has focused around the connection of oral and written language. And I want to highlight a particular area that a lot of your work stems around, which is developmental language disorder, or DLD. So... In your 2022 article in Literacy Today, Common But Hidden, you highlighted that DLD, despite being as prevalent as dyslexia, has much less awareness in the general public. And I know it's a really big topic to cover, but for those educators and parents out there who are listening, What might be three to five key takeaways that we need to know and understand about DLD and maybe even starting with a definition of what DLD is? Great. DLD or developmental language disorder is when a person has difficulty using or understanding language. And DLD has been found in every language study. So it's really a brain-based neurodiversity like autism or dyslexia that is related to how the brain processes the language that is heard in the ambient environment. It's not related to intelligence. DLD is prevalent. As you mentioned, the article's title was Common But Hidden. What we know about DLD is it affects about one in 14 children, and that's about two children per classroom, statistically speaking. But a big problem with DLD is that it's hidden because there's been many different labels used for DLD, that's been the biggest barrier to building awareness around DLD. So DLD has been referred to in research as specific language impairment. It's been referred to as expressive or receptive language disorder in the ICD-10 codes that are used for insurance. And in schools, there's a variety of labels used to qualify children with DLD for support services through IDEA. And it really depends on the age. So in early intervention, a child might qualify as having services as being developmentally delayed through language development and in early childhood, really referred to as a child who has speech and language impairment. And then later on in early and late elementary school and beyond, they will be referred for services as having a specific learning disability in comprehension. So all of these different labels across different systems have really limited our awareness, because you could you imagine, you know, if ADHD was referred to as 50 different labels, it's very hard to rally around that. So there was an international group that focused on determining one label to use and through a process that took several years, getting lots of invested parties involved, the label was decided as developmental language disorder. So now the United States is joining over 50 nations that are calling for better identification and intervention for children with developmental language disorder 
because we want to increase their academic outcomes because they often have difficulty in academic abilities. Because if you think about what we learn in school, it's all steeped in language. It's how we learn. And we're focused on reducing misuse of this label. Also, what we find is misuse of a behavioral disorder label. So these children can be referred as having a behavioral disorder when they're actually frustrated and not being able to communicate. And we're trying to work towards that. And what we know now, too, is that an important fact about DLD is only about 20% of children are ever identified as having DLD. So these children are often described, unfortunately, through more personality traits, like they might be shy, they might be hesitant. On the other end, there's pretty frustrating labels like lazy or disruptive. And we also have several research studies showing that parents and teachers are really rarely aware of the characteristics of DLD. So we're really trying to work to improve uh, awareness about DLD so these children don't fail and that we can get more of an overall sense of awareness for them, just like we have for dyslexia and ADHD and autism, for instance. Yeah. And so it's really interesting about trying to come up with that common label, because as we know, unfortunately, labels, especially if the same thing has many different labels, to your point, it can prevent the students from getting the support they need. And you said you're trying to raise awareness about kind of the common characteristics or what you might notice in students with DLD. You shared the definition. Could you share some examples of what might be some ways you could observe DLD in students? I know there's official screening that we, I also want to talk about, but as a teacher or a parent, some common observations. Yes. So the hallmark of developmental language disorder is difficulty learning and remembering words and also grammar. So what we see in children with DLD is that they are consistently late talkers. So they have fewer words than you would expect for their age. So a late talker, by definition, is a child who has less than 50 words at age two and no two-word combinations. So this is a big red flag for having developmental language disorder. However, it's a bit tricky because there's a lot of variation in early language development. So uh, we know that 100% of children who have DLD were late talkers, but only 25% of late talkers have DLD. So it's a red Mm -hmm. flag, but we have to look further. Another red flag for DLD is if you have family history of having difficulty, that's a big factor because it does tend to run in families. So first, we see that they have difficulty learning words and using early vocabulary words. They also have less mature grammatical structures. So from longitudinal studies, we know that these children do develop language through vocabulary and grammar in a similar trajectory as they're typically developing peers, but they tend to be late. So Mabel Rice is someone that studied specific language impairment, which is the research label that has been used in the past for developmental language disorder in the U.S. And what she's found through these longitudinal studies is a metaphor. So she says that children with DLD, it's as if the train track is kind of the developmental trajectory of language and they leave the station late. So they follow the same track Mm. as typically developing peers, but it takes them longer to get started. So what that means is they often appear to have immature grammar. So when they're four years old, they might be producing grammar like you might expect from a child who's two or three. 
So specifically, what that might look like is fewer words, but also leaving off important grammatical markers. Like, for instance, a child might say, he go to the store, as opposed to he is going to the store. So it's a nuance, but it is a grammatical marker that does carry some information that children develop over time. Another thing we know that's quite interesting about children's grammatical abilities who have DLD is that they don't tend to make errors as much as they tend to leave off markers. So it's Hmm. not that they're producing something that's unusual. It's that they're producing something that's immature. And that's really tricky, especially as children get older, because it takes a lot of knowledge around language development and frankly, an assessment to really figure out whether a child has developmental language disorder once they hit kindergarten and beyond, because children get thousands of words in their vocabulary at that time. And they're using grammar that is pretty specific. And because children choose what they say, children with DLD will often choose to say words they know, and they'll also choose to use grammatical structures that they know. So they really do blend in quite a bit. And we actually say that it's a lot like a vision impairment. You think you might be able to know who has difficulty seeing. But as scores of people will tell you, they don't find out until they do the vision screening in school that they have difficulty. And you think, well, how did you not know that? Weren't they squinting? Wasn't it obvious? And there might have been some subtle differences that you know might look back and say, well, I guess they did squint or they did walk up to the board more, or sit closer to the TV. But until you actually do a screening and a, a formal assessment, It's very difficult to pick out these children just on characteristics alone. Right. I love that analogy of the train tracks, that they're on the same train track. They just left the station late. I think that's always a question of, are they a late talker or is there something more? And you mentioned kindergarten being around the time that schools might use an official screening. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know in schools, very often they focus a lot on the decoding aspect of reading. Can you talk about, does it have to be a speech language pathologist who does the screening? Can schools do more official screening in the early grades for this? That's a great question and something we've really been working towards. The short answer is yes, they can do screening and screening that's focused on just decoding words will not capture all children with developmental language disorder because there's about a 50% overlap with children who have decoding difficulties. And what that means is that 50% of children who have developmental language disorder have the ability and do quite well in reading words. And because reading words is the focus of early academics, as it should be, What we see is that if a child with DLD can read words, then they're highly missed. So those are the kids that are most missed. (laughs) So of the 20% of children who are identified as having DLD, uh, the biggest predictor of being identified is if you have a co-occurring difficulty in reading words or if you have difficulty in executive function or attention. So if you're a teacher and you're seeing children who have ADHD, that's more obvious in many cases that they're having difficulty attending. Maybe they have the hyperactive aspect of it. And if they have difficulty reading words, that can also be a bit more obvious. So when they're set for testing for either dyslexia or ADHD, then if they're lucky, it will also reveal if they have it a co-occurring developmental language disorder. But children with DLD don't have to have co-occurring difficulties. And if they don't, they're the ones that are often missed. But I think this also goes to an important point 
about the difference between language and decoding. So it's a bit tricky because what we know from many studies is that to be able to read and understand the words on a page, so to be able to really have good what we call reading comprehension, you have to have skills in two primary areas minimally, and that is the ability to decode words on the page. So turn something that's written into spoken. And I don't mean spoken as reading out loud, because even when you read silently, you're speaking it within your head. So it's spoken either internal voice (laughs) or external. But that's word reading. But that's different than the other component, critically important component, which is language comprehension. So once you turn those spoken or those written words into something spoken, then you have a different set of processes that are starting to understand that spoken language. So what we know is that children can have difficulty in one of those areas or both. If a child has difficulty in word reading, that's really the hallmark of having dyslexia. It's still language-based, which is a bit confusing because we know that dyslexia is a unique type of language learning difficulty, but that language learning difficulty occurs in the area of language that we call phonology, and in particular, phonology being the sounds of language connecting letters and sounds. So that's a specific area of language. There's other areas of language which involve understanding and language and using language, which we call the content. That's kind of the meaning behind the language. And then we also have pragmatics or the social use of language. Those two components are really what underlies a child's ability to understand the text that is turned into spoken language. And we also know through quite creative studies, experimental psychology studies and neuroscience, brain-based studies, that the same parts of the brain that you use to understand what you're listening to on this podcast, for instance, is the same areas of the brain that you use to understand the written language that's turned into something spoken. So reading comprehension and listening comprehension share a lot of similarities, but with reading, you're actually adding in the decoding. So you've got to turn the written form into something spoken. And with listening comprehension, you can just listen to it. So with that background in mind, We have a lot of great systems in place now and laws that focus on identifying dyslexia, which is that area of word reading. So if you have difficulty decoding, we have some great early identification dedicated to trying to determine which children are going to have difficulty with decoding words and then to provide them ideally the support they need to mitigate long-term troubles with reading words and, of course, accessing text. However, we have the other side. And the other side of this is referred to as the simple view, where you have the word reading and listening comprehension. The other side of the simple view is that language comprehension piece. And that's what's really missing in our school systems now in terms of the multi-tiered systems of support, where we have universal screening and then identifying children who are struggling and providing them the supports they need. And if they still don't respond with additional supports, getting them the special education services they need. That's what's really missing in our overall system of MTSS. So what we're trying to think through is making sure that there is not only a test of decoding focused on letters and sounds and connecting them and some of the precursors. So phonological awareness and rapid automatic naming and letter identification, those are great precursors to learning to read words. And so we know from longitudinal studies, if we look at those precursors, we can identify those who might struggle to read words. But we also have those same precursors for children who have developmental language disorder. So there are some great screeners out there that are focused on 
word learning and grammatical complexity and that can be used to screen for language. And what I often run into in terms of why schools aren't screening for language is something you head on, Liz, is does this have to be done by an SLP? So language and the support of children with developmental language disorders has been the purview of speech language pathologists for a hundred or more years that it has been identified. So that's really been the area of the speech language pathologist. But I think we're doing ourselves a disservice siloing the support for children of developmental language disorder only by speech language pathologists because these children exist in all realms of life. They're in the classes, they're out in the community. And so these are not just our children, the SLP's children. These are everyone's children. And so what we want to do is think through how to identify these children through the system in which they live, which is the school system, and through multi-tiered system of support, which is developed as a system for early identification for children and providing them support. So one of those barriers has been the speech pathologist. So to answer your question, no, speech language pathologist does not have to be the one to administer screening or interpret it. It can be part of the screening system that's in place already for early reading difficulties. But another barrier is that schools will often think that they are assessing for language because early comprehension measures that are used. So when you say comprehension, you think, okay, well, comprehension is going to involve language comprehension. But actually, early comprehension measures are heavily influenced by a child's ability to decode words. That's because the language that you have to have that a child can decode is very basic. So when we look at comprehension measures, and I mean having a child read a short passage and ask them language comprehension questions, you think, well, I'm testing comprehension. But what we found is that if a child can read the words on a page, the language is so basic that they can make a very good guess. So children with developmental language disorder who can read words, they can pass those assessments quite easily because the language is frankly just not hard enough. It's so easy. They can guess. In those early decoding stories. Yes, Yes. exactly. Right. And that makes sense. So what we have to do is be more creative about actually having measures that will uncover developmental language disorder. And a good example is a measure of more advanced grammar. So what we've done is just one example is a measure you can use is you can have children look at four pictures and then you tell them a sentence that has more advanced grammar, like the dog was chased by the cat. That's pretty right. advanced for kindergartners to understand. And they have to pick the picture that represents that complexity. And we have found quite a lot of success in just something as basic as can you understand complex grammar can be a good early warning sign for DLD that requires further assessment. As we've been talking about the science of reading, there's a lot of teachers that have been following more the balanced literacy approach in the classroom. In thinking about DLD, is there a way you can think about transitioning some of the elements that they've been using to more evidence-based approaches? Yeah, that's a great question. And I also think that focusing on language comprehension versus word reading is a nice way to think through some of the controversies we've seen around reading instruction, because we know that word reading instruction is important, but we also know that language and stimulating language is important. So I think that considering 
the evidence base, it's a great way to make that connection between what people might be missing in a balanced literacy approach and what can be replaced with evidence, as you mentioned. So an example is when we're working with our education partners, they've told me that they miss doing running records, which is, you know, having the child read aloud and then mark what the accuracy is and the fluency of that reading. And running records hasn't been shown to be as effective in terms of determining what to do for intervention, right? So how to change curriculum, it's just not been shown to be as effective. But teachers I work with really liked it because they liked having an individual time with their students to get a richer sense of what they're doing around reading. So what we've done then is work with our partners to say, well, let's look at an evidence-based practice that does inform your instruction and replace running records with it. So a good example is story retail. So story retail is having a child come to the teacher's desk, you know, individually, and the teacher will tell them a story, a short story. And then the child tells them the story back. So retells the story. And it really gives you some great insight that can be used to determine who has DLD, who's struggling with specific aspects of language. So are they struggling with word finding? Are they constantly saying, um, I don't know that word. It's this word. It's that word. It sounds like this. It looks like this. Are they using immature grammar that you don't see in the other children in your class? And are they leaving out critically important story components? And what we find from teachers is that they are so happy to do this because it replaces that need for understanding something a bit broader about the child and that individual time with the child. And teachers are telling us that they're very surprised at the variability that they uncover when they individually assess the child's language ability through story retail. Right. And that's a great example of how that doesn't have to happen with the speech language pathologist, right? It can happen in the classroom. Yes. So a retell, I think that is often something teachers do anyway, but understanding if they're using that immature grammar you talked about earlier, right? Or if they can understand the dog is chasing the cat versus the cat chasing the dog and all of that, that is really powerful. And I'm wondering, you're referring to some of the earlier grades, but if these students are missed as they unfortunately often are in the early grades. What might be some continued ways or ways we can think about language and its impact in the upper grades? That's a great question. I think what we have to first do is really bring DLD to the consciousness of why children may struggle. So as children are struggling academically, we might start to wonder why. I think that teachers and educators in general are starting to think through more, are they able to read words, which is great. Mm -hmm. Like, can they read the text? Like if they can't understand and they're, do, they're scoring poorly academically, I think we can ask ourselves some key questions. Can they read the text? And I think that's getting more awareness around dyslexia screening and awareness. Another one is, do they have ADHD? Can they attend to the course? And I think that's something that's on the radar but what isn't on the radar is if they can access the text by reading it, and if they have the attentional skills to focus, are they able to understand the language in the test? And this is where it really falls off because what it becomes is, well, if they can read the words and they have the attention, if they're not understanding, it's because one, maybe they grew up in poverty. Maybe they don't have a good mm -hmm. language-enriched environment. What we know about DLD is that DLD occurs in low-resourced families living in poverty, 
but it also occurs in highly resourced families. It's exacerbated by lack of language stimulation, but it's definitely not the cause because children Mm. who are raised in poverty can still have quite good language skills. And we have so many examples of that. So it's really a neurodiversity around brain processing of language that is separate from the environment. And that's really important because that leads to a lot of misunderstanding about DLD. It's, well, if you can read the words and you have attention, you must either have an impoverished home environment or I think even more damning is you must be lazy or you must be stupid. And those Mm -hmm. things are really horrible, as you can imagine. What can happen is that at all grades, we should be thinking through what are the barriers to children as they learn and have systems in place to really identify those barriers. So as children are learning across the grades, we should have some systems in place that if they're starting to struggle, that we should have a better sense of why and have some ready systems in place to determine why. Because frankly, there's no lazy child. Children want to learn. And what's most frustrating to me about the lazy characteristic is that children with DLD are actually working double and triple time as hard (laughs) to understand language as they're typically developing peers, yet at the same time, they can often receive the message that they're just not working hard enough if they would just work harder. If we had some better identification systems in place, then we could actually provide them the supports they need. Because again, with DLD, because it's a neurodiversity, this is not something that goes away. Right. So we have to support children along the continuum and meet them where they are. Just like we know ADHD doesn't go away and right. dyslexia, dyslexia doesn't go away. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we can remediate and make great improvements in word reading, but the brain processing that's associated with dyslexia can also cause difficulty in in processing spoken language too. So it can get a little tricky to try to figure these two out actually, but really the key is having good assessments. That's really the key. Yeah, well, talking about what is referred to as that simple view of reading with the decoding or the word recognition and the language comprehension and that reading comprehension is the product of those two, I think even just more and more teachers becoming aware, to your point, that other component and that they need to think about whether or not their systems, hopefully systems in schools do have screenings for the language component. But if not, teachers, as you're listening out there, just thinking about those aspects of learning and remembering new words, understanding the details of a story, grammar, And we will link some of your work in our show notes so people can follow up. But I also know you started a website or were part of a group that started a website that's dldandme.org, all one word. So tell us a little bit about that website and what it can do for both parents and teachers. Well, what we wanted to have was to create a community around DLD. So if a child, and again, keep in mind the prevalence of dyslexia and the prevalence of DLD is approximately the same. If a child receives the diagnosis of dyslexia or is told that they have characteristics of dyslexia, that parent can go online and find immediate support through the International Dyslexia Association, the Dyslexia Foundation, and a multitude of other support mechanisms. They could read books about dyslexia. They can watch videos about children who have dyslexia. They can watch videos about successful adults who had dyslexia. They're immediately hooked into a community 
that they can start to learn from and advocate for themselves. The same can be said for ADHD. I mean, there's a whole magazine on ADHD. There's communities, there's podcasts, there's all this support. When I was a speech language pathologist and I you know, worked across all of these areas, I really hated when I had to tell parents that your child has developmental language disorder. At that time, we call it specific language impairment because there was no community around that, none. Mm-hmm. And ASHA, who's our American Speech Language Hearing Association, they have like one page. Again, ASHA is very broad and has lots of different components to communication disorders that they're serving. So we really wanted to fill that void to try to create more of a community. And that void has also been filled by a website and an international movement called Rattle, R-A-D-L-D. And that is raising awareness around DLD. And Rattle's fantastic as well, but Rattle was international focused. So what we felt like with DLD and me is we wanted to focus on the United States context as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of the work around DLD awareness came out of Britain. So there's a great little video that I would show. It was called 123 DLD. And it was, you have the British accents. It was, it's very informative. It's still one of my favorite videos, but I would show it and people would say, well, that doesn't represent me. That's something that happens in Britain, right? That's a British thing. That's a different country. So we wanted to bring awareness and a community, but we also wanted to really represent the U.S. context. So this is a group of researchers. It's led by Carla McGregor at Boys Town National Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska, and others across the United States who study children with DLD and advocate for these children. So what we wanted to do is take the research that we have and we wanted to distill it down into very short form kind of informational articles with infographics and make it more digestible for the public. So we started by really thinking about what are some of the key aspects of DLD that we want to share about. So we wrote these short articles and they're building and building. And now we have on the website on the top right hand corner and you can click for parents, for educators. So we started to categorize for our audiences and really trying to connect people with this community and knowledge around DLD and starting to create some advocacy as well. Wonderful. Yeah. And it's so true. Like you said, if a parent finds out that their child has dyslexia, there's so many resources out there. They've heard of it before. And so it's wonderful that you and others have created dldandme.org. So we will also link that in our notes at this episode. So I want to shift gears just a little bit. That idea of community is maybe this thread that connects to this idea of research and practice. And in January, when you joined me to talk to Emily Hanford about her investigation into literacy, which her podcast sold a story, if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend to our listeners out there. But one of the points that you made in that conversation was the importance of connecting researchers and practitioners, right? So our classroom teachers and administrators. Can you talk about why that connection and that bi-directional flow of information is so important for our students? Yes, absolutely. It goes back to the environments and the people that are around the children that we serve and just around children in general, is that if you have work that you're doing in a lab or in a controlled setting around developmental language disorder, that doesn't automatically apply to what's happening in schools because schools have their own context and they have their own demands. 
And so really, it's so important to really work together to think about how the work that we do on developmental language disorder, how does that match the context of what's happening in the educational setting? And even more importantly, how can we really work together as a team to create systems of support for children with developmental language disorder? And who better to help create those systems than those who are actually living in the system? So teachers and educators and administrators, because they're creating these systems of support. And if they don't know about a condition like developmental language disorder, how will they create support? But at the same time, if researchers are completely ignorant of the system that's in place, how will they create research that will matter for that system? So it's just so important to have that back and forth of really co-creation of support systems in place. And I think this is where I've been so happy to interact with so many committed educators, administrators in school-based systems, and to really think through, like, what is the best way to advocate? What can we do with a system that's in place? Because we have to always thinking about, with a system in place, what can you change? And what should you just adapt and add to? So I think the MTSS system is a great example. It's an established system that schools are working within. And we think of it as one MTSS system that's supporting children. And that focus has been on word reading, but working with educators, this back and forth and this co-creation, we've been thinking about how to use the MTSS system to further support children with DLD. It's just another example. Does it need to be another layer of MTSS? How do we incorporate it into what's already there? How do we add to it? I think it's so important. And it also relates to a lot of the work on what is the focus of attention for the curricula. Like you mentioned, the early curricula is focused on word reading, as it should be. But what science Mm -hmm. tells us is that children are developing word reading abilities and the precursors to word reading from birth. And they're also developing their language comprehension skills. So instead of having it be kind of a volley where it's like, okay, let's focus on decoding. Now they can read words. Now let's focus on comprehension, which is what has been happening primarily. And that's in the best systems, we would see that, right? right? But a slight tweak that can be made is that you would want to support both of those threads, word reading and language comprehension across the entire curriculum. So at the younger ages, supporting language comprehension, at the same time, you're focusing on decoding and word reading ability. And maybe it's a bit of more focus on word reading, a little less on language. That's okay. And as we shift, I would argue, too, that we need to continue focusing on word reading, even in the later grades, because we have derivational morphology, we have roots, Latin roots and morphology, that those Latin roots and morphology can really help to better comprehend. So we should really be focusing on both those threads across the grades. But I would never even be able to think through these issues if I didn't have the connection and the free flow of information back and forth between my educator partners and the work that I'm doing. It's just so critically important for changing the systems and creating outcomes for children that we want to see. Right. And I think there's been studies or analyses done that says it might, and I think I I saw this in one of your presentations about like 15 years to implement the findings of 15% of the research out there or something. So this idea that it is so important, we have all this science, the science of reading, right? That everybody's talking about is the evidence, the research findings, but how does that get translated 
into the classroom. We're starting to hear more and more about it these days, and it's starting to be talked about under the umbrella of implementation science. So can you maybe provide us with a definition of what you believe implementation science is and how it's related to this connection between practitioners and researchers? Yes. So implementation science is the scientific study of methods and strategies that facilitate the uptake of evidence-based practice and research into regular use by practitioners and policymakers. So implementation science focuses on closing the gap between what we know and what we do. And if you think about implementation science related to research findings, research findings are like the ingredients And implementation science is how we prepare those ingredients, how do we combine them, and how do we bake them in a specific oven. So evidence is just one of the factors to ensuring that we have the best reading outcomes for children. And implementation science is part of an umbrella under translational research. So National Institutes of Health define translational research as being implementation science and dissemination science as well. So how do Mm. we disseminate our findings and implementation science is how do we create systems um, and the methods in which we use so that the evidence is more readily used in practice. And it really is driven by that exact statistic that you brought up. It's a relatively new scientific field that started a little over 20 years ago in the healthcare field. And that was because there was some seminal work showing that after the National Institutes of Health and other funding agencies put millions and millions of taxpayer dollars into scientific studies. It's so disappointing they found that it took 17 years for only 14% of the evidence that was created to make it into practice. I round it up and make it tidier (laughs) by saying more than 15 years for less than 15%. And we have no reason to believe it's different in education. And so because of this, scientists started to look at applying the scientific method to increasing evidence-based practice. And that's really where implementation science came out. So it is a scientific method. It is a systematic approach to creating more evidence-based practice. And the other thing is that this has been happening in healthcare, but we're starting to see those same methods adapted for the educational setting. And that's only happened in the past maximum 10 years, but really in the last five years, there's been an uptake of really thinking through how we can use what's happened in implementation science in the healthcare system and how can we apply that and adapt it for the educational system. Wow. I think for me and hopefully our listeners, those analogies are really helpful. So the evidence, the research are the ingredients, right? The findings are the ingredients. And then the implementation science is how those ingredients get combined and in what type of oven, Mm -hmm. Yes, and for how long in the oven, in that case is like the context. And it really brings it right back to what you talked about with the importance of the connection between educators and researchers through implementation Mm -hmm. science. That's really highlighted because the other fact that has been discovered through implementation science is that when you conduct a research study, let's say it's an intervention study, and we run the gold standard of a randomized control trial in which we really try to figure out if we intervene and change something, 
Does it create a different outcome? And we do this by randomizing children, for instance, into one group versus another. And we run these studies. I've been a part of running several randomized control studies of language interventions, for instance. So we have children Mm -hmm. who struggle with language comprehension. We randomize them into either a language intervention or no language intervention or something that's an intervention that doesn't tackle language. And then what we find is, wow, lo and behold, the language intervention works. And we look at what we call effect sizes. So effect size would be like, how well does it work? Like, how strong is this intervention? And what implementation science has revealed is that it's not the effect size that determines whether evidence is in practice. So you might think to yourself, well, if only 14% of evidence is put into practice, it must be the evidence that has the strongest effect. You know, like that's got to be what's driving it. But that's actually not what's driving it. What's driving the evidence that gets put into practice is how well that intervention matches the context Context. in which it will be delivered. So Mm -hmm. if it's the match to context, then we have to attend to that in our research. And the best way to attend to that is co-create our interventions to fit into the school-based context. The more we can do that ahead of time, the more likely that if it is found to be effective, that it will automatically be implemented. Because you don't have to try to figure out, like, how do I take this thing and make it fit into the school system? You've already co-created it to help it to fit. So that's a really important factor with implementation science is really thinking through the context in which you are intervening. And that's kind of like the oven, the temperature. So there's a lot of things that we can generalize across school settings, but there's also things we can't. And so we have to look at what's the same across school settings, but also what's unique to a specific school setting that would impact an intervention's effectiveness. Yeah, so, so powerful. And I believe you recently took part in a session out at University of Washington at the RISE Institute, which is the Research Institute for Implementation Science and Education. Can you briefly tell us what the RISE Institute is and what your key takeaways were from that session? Oh, yes, that was such an awesome opportunity. This RISE Institute at the University of Washington is funded by the Institute of Education Sciences through the Department of Education. And it's really the first of its kind. It reflects a collaborative, innovative effort to develop the implementation research workforce in education to improve educational outcomes. And it's led by a group of core faculty who have extensive experience. They're really the pioneers in implementation science in research. And they've primarily been focusing on behavioral interventions around social emotional development and positive behaviors in schools. They've done a lot of work on how to improve the overall climate of schools and how to support children in making good choices in school systems. So they've learned through this process about how to do implementation science in school systems. And so they wrote this grant, a training grant from Institute of Education Sciences to provide training and mentorship to establish education scholars, which they call fellows. And so they wanted to increase our expertise in conceptualizing, designing, and importantly, executing implementation research studies in schools. And so they select 12 fellows each year and they had two sets of fellows. So it was very competitive and I was very excited to be chosen to receive this training and it involved a one week of intensive training in Seattle last week. And then we have individualized meetings with our assigned core faculty. And we also have webinars that we're taking. And the outcome 
for the RISE model is to really create and think through what are some of the unique characteristics of the school setting that we can think through for implementation science that might require education-specific implementation science and solutions. And their goal is to create more research studies with implementation partners in the school setting and to also write more papers and just really share more about how implementation science can have a positive impact on educational outcomes. And there were people that were interested in many different areas of education, like this positive behavioral change. We had someone who was interested in suicide prevention. We had people that were interested in autism and how to support children with autism. And then there was a group of us, about six of us, that were interested in reading and language outcomes and literacy outcomes in children. Wow. As you said, it's a relatively new field, 10 years or so. And to have this institute focused on it, first of its kind. And again, thinking about the multiple areas of focus, but all coming back to the context. And this is so important right now in our country with so many laws being passed around making sure teachers have knowledge of the science of reading, which is phenomenal. But then that is just the first step. And how do we help them actually implement that within their context of their school? So I'm excited to see where we continue to go. And absolutely that partnership between researchers and practitioners is so important. So I know we've covered a lot today and I'm excited to have our listeners learn more about DLD from you, as well as continuing to go to dldandme.org to get more information. But as you think about your work and whether it's being in the schools or in your studies and what you're finding, what do you see that really makes you excited for the future? There's so much going on now that makes me excited. I think you mentioned throughout this discussion that we have the science of reading and now people are talking about the science of teaching reading and implementation science even goes beyond that because implementation science is really about creating systems and taking into account the barriers and facilitators to the teaching of reading. So there's a lot going on I'm excited about because we see that within the science of reading, there's been a focus on better word reading instruction. There's also a focus on building knowledge And a way to build knowledge is through language comprehension instruction. So that's how knowledge gets into the brain. (laughs) You know, we think about how do we build knowledge? Well, it's through language. So that's exciting to see that we're coming together on those two important components of the simple view of reading and that we're really thinking through how to provide early identification, not only for children with word reading difficulties, but also children with language difficulties. So I, I think that's very important. And I think that getting implementation science into the educational field is the most exciting thing to me because we can really think through some of the more sophisticated ways to improve outcomes. And I want to give you a a quick example of something I recently heard that was so exciting and I think could be applied. So what we know is that if you have a solid curriculum in place for teaching word reading, for instance, that's one step. But then beyond that, we know that educators will benefit from having a coach, like someone that helps them through, like, how can I better implement then along the way as bumps happen along the road or questions come up. 
And this is seen in a lot of fields in education around like positive behavior, for instance, trainings that occur, and then you have this great intervention. And so there's in implementation science, there's these great designs where you can start to think about what happens when you need something different than coaching, for instance. So there's a study that was conducted out of the University of Michigan where they provided this intervention and then they provided some coaching and training around it. And then they looked to see how well it was implemented. So this would be like if you have the phonics instruction and then you provide some coaching and some instruction, some training, and then you look to see like how well is it going in the classroom? So is it the curriculum playing out as it should, which we often call that fidelity? So is it playing out as it should? Well, what they found is that they had these basically non-responders of educators who were struggling to get the curriculum going as it should. So the rule of thumb has been if a teacher's struggling in that way or a system's struggling to implement something, you just give them more coaching. (laughs) Just give them more development. (laughs) Like, just talk to them more. Well, what this study looked at was, what if you actually stepped back and you didn't give them more coaching, but you actually just had a discussion and said, what is stopping you from being able to do this intervention? Like, what is it? Like listening, more listening than giving. <laughs> Instead of just training, step back and just listen. And this was referred to as like strategy mitigation, like thinking of strategies, right? Like, how can we think of strategies? And so what happened was they compared it in this trial. Like if you give more coaching versus just sit down and say, what's going on? Right. Listening they, to what the barrier is. Listening to are. what the yeah. barrier is and talking through the strategies to get around those barriers. And what was found is that listening condition was so much more impactful, like double the impact of mm. more coaching. Because if you think about it, a teacher and the teachers I talk to will say, of course, I know I need to do this, but there's a lot of barriers. And some of those barriers are like, I don't have time to plan. I don't have anyone to go to to talk through this, or I have an administrator that tells me it's not important. There's a lot of these things. And so what can happen then is that listening session resulted in strategies to mitigate the barriers. And those that in that condition, all of a sudden, the fidelity of the intervention went up. So the intervention started to be implemented to create those student outcomes. I'm very excited about thinking through Not only what is the best intervention, because that's still that work needs to be done, but really how can we work with educators to create a system that is facilitative to evidence-based practice and helps to reduce the barriers that are inherent to that system? Yeah, and I can imagine because going back to that idea of the context or the oven, right, everybody is going to have slightly different barriers, right? Although interventions are designed to be generalized across, which for the most part, they can be. But each teacher, even within a building, might have different barriers. So I love that idea of just listening and problem solving rather than giving more coaching, but actually stopping and listening. So similarly, maybe one of the last things I always like to ask my guests is for any teachers listening in, what actionable advice would you give them that they might apply to their classrooms tomorrow around some of the topics we discussed here today? Well, first, I just want to say how grateful I am to all educators. They've been through a really hard time with COVID closures. And I just 
I think anyone who's heading into the classroom, I just want to say thank you. You are truly heroes and you have our future in your hands. And I just appreciate that you're listening to this podcast and that you're interested in this topic. So thank you. It's hard for me to give advice sometimes because I'm just so in awe of what teachers are doing and educators in general. But if I did have to go out on them and give some advice, I think there are a few pieces. One, I would say, first, feel very empowered by evidence. So I think a lot of times it's teachers are made to feel inferior because they may not understand some of the research that's out there or they don't have maybe a grasp on some of the evidence, but you're not to blame for that. That's actually on the researchers, that's on the system in place. And I just hope you feel empowered to know that your expertise and your observations matter and that what you're doing now is just amazing that you're interested in this evidence and thinking through how to do it. And the other thing I would say is just learning more about DLD and bringing that into your consciousness at all times, that DLD could be a struggle that your children have, and that if you could think through how to infuse DLD into the system a bit more and how to think through identifying those children to support them, that would be a, a really amazing thing that you could do to make an impact. Well, thank you so much, Tiffany, for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate your insights across the board and bringing awareness to such an important topic. Thank you so much, Liz, for having me. Yes. And thank you so much to our listeners for joining Tiffany and me today. I'm looking forward to hearing from our listeners, especially their thoughts about connecting educators and researchers. What do you wish they knew? And help us welcome more people to the Literacy Conversation by leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes, including a very exciting conversation with Dr. Marianne Wolf. And I'd love to hear more about what you're experiencing in literacy education. So you can join the conversation on Twitter by following Tiffany at Tiffany P. Hogan, and myself at Liz C. Brooke. And don't forget to check out Tiffany's podcast, See, Hear, Speak, and also go to dldandme.org, all one word, to learn more about this really important topic and ways that we can help better support our students. So thanks everyone for joining us today. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the Literacy Conversation. 